Hello and welcome back to the eighth episode of Across Storied Lands. I'm your host, Jordana Manchester, a Canadian-born writer, travel advisor, and anthropology enthusiast. This podcast features themes on travel, culture, and everything to do with the human condition. Before I get into today's episode, I want to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from the ancestral, stolen lands of the Squamish, Lilawat, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations, members of the Coast Salish Aboriginal Peoples. Now that I've acknowledged the stewards of these beautiful lands, let's dive in. Welcome back, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all of my listeners around the world, wherever you are. I know it's been a long hiatus for Across Story Lands, but I'm so happy to be back in front of a microphone. So thanks for joining me. I thought it would be perfect to relaunch this podcast with a feature on pioneers in Black travel. I mean, it is Black History Month after all. And I think it's important that I pay tribute to my own ancestors and acknowledge the work that they've done to shape the industry that I love so much. So who are these pioneers? Well, I'm talking about heroes and heroines like Betty Reed Soskin, Victor Hugo Green, Albert and Margaret Tull Robinson, Barbara Hillary and Mae Jemison. These are just a few of the African-Americans who've changed the face of Black travel. We all owe them a great deal of gratitude for their courage in the face of racism, discrimination, segregation, and persecution. So you probably don't recognize any of those names. Well, you might recognize one. You might recognize the first hero in travel that I'll be featuring, and that's Victor Hugo Green, an African-American postal worker turned iconic travel writer. As the author of the Negro Motorist Green book, Mr. Green made it possible for black folks to travel the deep south and beyond during one of the most terrifying eras of American history. Maybe you don't know his name, but you've likely heard of his travel guide, the Academy Award-winning movie The Green Book. It's not actually about Mr. Green at all. It's about Dr. Don Shirley, an African-American pianist who travels through the South on a concert tour with his racist-turned-sympathizer Italian driver. The film is moving, but the book itself only makes a few brief appearances. It doesn't actually talk about the book at all. So I want to share the author's story with you and talk about the profound impact of his work. But before I do that, I just want to shed a little bit of light on why talking about Black people and travel is so important today. When I tell people that the travel and tourism industry has a long way to go in terms of diversity, inclusion, and representation, I'm not being hyperbolic. That's actually a gross understatement. And when I say the travel industry, I mean all aspects of the travel industry. The consumer side, the trade side, the marketing side, the travel content creation side. There is a gap, a void, a whole lot of missing faces of color. As a black travel professional and an avid traveler, I know this all too well. I have the lived experience to back it up. I've been a travel advisor for 17 years, a travel writer for 13 of those years, and a traveler Well, for most of my life, I know what it feels like to be the odd one out in the travel space. I've been the minority on tours, on the backpacking trail, and every other space that white travelers occupy without a second thought. But it's being a travel advisor that's really shone a spotlight on this lack of diversity, for me at least. And one of the spaces that um, makes me feel so different, where the feelings are so visceral, 
is travel conferences. And I've attended a lot over the years. These huge ballrooms filled with fellow travel professionals, some more senior than me, but just as many with less experience, and I've never felt more othered. I've sat down at countless tables and listened to keynote speakers or brand presentations, and in between, there's in between these talks, there's always some interesting discussions. There's also the usual, the introductions, the where agency are you from, what's your specialization, where are you located geographically, the usual stuff. And then we start getting into what I, you know, what I think is the fun stuff, which is the travel experience, the personal travel experience. But this is, <laughs> this is where shit always seems to go sideways. We start to exchange our personal travel stories, but then when they hear how many places I've been or the experiences that I've had or my personal take on culture and how it's such an important component of my business, the rapid fire questioning begins. Why would you visit that place? Why would you send your clients there? And if it's somewhere that they've traveled, there's the classic, wow, what a shame you didn't eat here. Or, Why didn't you visit this site? Or I, this is my absolute favorite. Wow, must have felt strange being there because, well, you know, you're dot, dot, dot. <laughs> I'm always polite at first. I smile, I answer their questions. But uh, once the collective kind of the hush settles over the table and the rolling eyes and looks of disbelief, make the rounds like an awkward stadium wave, I, uh, I kind of stop talking. They're not listening anymore. They're not interested. And I've just challenged their perception of people of color in the travel space. The hostility is palpable. And with it being a professional setting, I just choose silence over conflict. And as I, I sit there politely, they chat amongst themselves. And without fail, they start reminiscing about the golden days of travel. They romanticize destinations that were once perfect but have changed and modernized too much. They exoticize outdated experiences that have fallen by the wayside because, well, we, we know better now. These so-called ambassadors to the world are stuck in some kind of overly romanticized whitewashed time warp. And as I sit and listen, I get this awful sense of deja vu. I've been at this table so many times over the years, but the irony is I've never had a seat at this table. These are the cold hard facts. African Americans dropped $104.9 billion in leisure travel in 2019, alone. And yet blacks and people of color are not properly represented in the travel space. They don't show up enough in these glossy travel magazines or brochures or tourism board websites or they're not sitting on board of directors for travel brands or in the social media space even. In 2020, with the resurgence of Black Lives Matter, the race was on for HR and marketing departments to draft up policies on diversity, inclusion and representation. So we saw a little bit of a blip, but like I said at the top of this segment, we have miles to go. And so we march on. We are a knowledge-seeking, world-curious, adventurous, linguistically gifted, culture-loving, travel-obsessed community. And we have been for some time. So, let's travel back in time and talk about one of the most important and influential figures of the Black travel movement, Victor Hugo Green. 
There will be a day, sometime in the near future, when this guidebook will not have to be published. That is when we as a race will have equal opportunities and privileges in the United States. It will be a great day for us to suspend this publication, for then we can go wherever we please and without embarrassment. This is a direct quote from the Green Book, and it was the vision of Manhattan-based postal worker Victor Hugo Green. Mr. Green wrote one of the very first travel guides for African-American travelers, and he wrote it at the height of the Jim Crow era. Now, you probably know the term Jim Crow, but just as a refresher, the Jim Crow laws were a series of localized and statewide laws that enforced segregation. African-Americans were not permitted to share waiting rooms, water fountains, building entrances, elevators, cemeteries, recreational pools. They were even segregated Coca-Cola machines. Just in case you need any more reason to hate the Coca-Cola Corporation, there you go. They weren't allowed to live in white neighborhoods or attend white schools or seek medical attention at the same hospitals. Every aspect of life for African Americans, especially Southern Blacks, was plagued with exclusion, discrimination, a lack of freedom, and a constant fear of violence or death. The Jim Crow laws were enacted in the 1870s and were formally in effect until 1965, but the culture of Jim Crow, it pervades today. In the 1930s, Victor Hugo Green saw that his own people were fearful about venturing outside of their neighborhood and communities in New York, and for good reason. But Blacks were beginning to have more of a disposable income, and their middle class was expanding. This was the beginning of the golden age of automobiles, and Americans were purchasing cars at explosive rates. The interstate promised grand adventures. Well, for white Americans, that is. The landscape wasn't so hospitable for blacks, and Victor Green wanted to do something about it. The Negro's Motorist book was first published in 1936, and uh, Mr. Green credits its inspiration to a close friend of his who had written a guidebook for Jewish people who wanted to visit the Catskills. This was a really contentious and frightening time for the Jewish people, especially with the horrors occurring in Europe at the time. Now, American Jews may not have experienced segregation in America the same way that African Americans did, but they still faced grave discrimination. The Negro's Motorist Book, or as it became later known, the Green Book, was first a New York guidebook. It included black-friendly restaurant listings and hotels in the New York area. But Mr. Green wanted to expand the scope of the book, so he enlisted the help of his fellow mail carriers to gather information about black-owned establishments not only in New York but across the country. Once he established a decent national readership, he began asking his readers for submissions by offering them cash payments. By the early 1940s, the Green Book included thousands of black-friendly hotels, restaurants, entertainment venues all across the United States, each one verified and pre-vetted. Now, if you've ever tried to write a guide on anything, on any kind of destination, just a small town, you can imagine, and I'm sure you know how much work that goes into that, now imagine creating a national guidebook and conducting the research at a time when the wrong questions in the wrong town could get you thrown in jail, assaulted, or worse. By 1949, the Green Book became the go-to resource for black motorists looking for the perfect diner in Los Angeles or a smoky jazz bar in New Orleans or the best black women's beauty parlor in the heart of Chicago. 
The cleaners on 423 Montgomery Street in Montgomery, Alabama offered laundry services. Burnell Service Station in Camden, Arkansas was where you would go to get your oil service or your tires changed. And the Flower Pot Grill and Guest House in Daytona Beach, Florida offered clean and comfortable accommodations for travelers looking for a bit of sun. Mr. Green may have been a New Yorker, but he had found me in Virginia, and he was well acquainted with the experience of traveling while black, especially in the South. And it was important for him that his people feel safe and welcome wherever they traveled. The book itself was organized by state and city. The options were concentrated usually in larger city centers like Detroit, Chicago, and Denver. Smaller, smaller towns had fewer options, understandably. Interestingly, there was only one entry for Alaska in the 1960 edition of Mr. Green's book. Mr. Green dug deep in his research, and when his readers couldn't bring embedded business establishments or there were no black-friendly accommodations, he curated a list of homeowners who would rent to black travelers. Sundown Towns and Route 66. The iconic Route 66, or so-called Road of Dreams, was not fully constructed until 1936. But the Los Angeles to Chicago part of the highway was numerically assigned in April 1926. It became known as the Mother Road. The whole idea behind this national highway was to connect rural America with its metropolises. It was an escape route for anyone wanting to flee their small town and make for the big city. Well, <laughs> not anyone. While this 2,440-mile yellow brick road was a symbol of liberation and grand adventures for some, for blacks it could be a dark, danger-filled path across a violent landscape filled with racial landmines. The year before the highway opened, on August 29, 1925, an article in the Chicago Tribune wrote this about blacks. We should be doing no service to the Negroes if we do not point out that to a very large section of the white population, the presence of a Negro, however well-behaved, among white bathers is an irritation. This may be a regrettable fact to the Negroes, but it is nevertheless a fact and we must be reckoned with. The Negroes could make a definite contribution to good race relationship by remaining away from beaches where their presence is resented. <sighs> the message was always the same. We don't want your kind here. The scariest aspect of Route 66 for American Blacks was that the long stretches of desolate highway offered them no protection against marauding white motorists. And the collective of 150 sundown towns that stretched across the country were not such a great aspect either. What's a sundown town, you ask? Yeah, it's as scary as it sounds. Sundown towns, also known as gray towns or sunset towns or sundowner towns, to be blunt, were the last place on earth you wanted to be if you were black. They were all white towns, neighborhoods, and municipalities that had discriminatory laws specifically against African Americans. These are the kinds of towns where racism was so entrenched in local culture that everyone from city planners, local mayors, law enforcement, real estate agents, to construction companies and utility companies made it their business to ensure that the environment was so volatile, blacks never even thought about settling there. These are the kind of towns where you drive in and you'd see a sign that said, no Negroes allowed, and much worse. These are also the towns where some of the most egregious, violent crimes against blacks occurred in American history. 
And I will dedicate an entire episode to sundown towns at a later date because we'd like to think that these sorts of places are in our rearview mirror, but there are sundowner towns that exist today. Now, I want to take a moment and acknowledge the fact that the Green Book was not the only Black-only travel guidebook at the time. There were other options. There was a travel guide, and that was published from 1947 to 1963. There was Hackley and Harrison's Hotel and Apartment Guide for Colored Travelers, and that was published from 1930 to 1931. And there was Grayson's Guide, the Go Guide to Pleasant Motoring, and that was published from 1953 to 1959. But the Green Book was, it joined the longest publication, and that was from 1936 to 1966. And it had the widest readership with an audience of over 2 million travelers over its time. Victor Hugo Green's work provided safety. It created the most well-connected all-Black community in the United States. It invested in the Black economy when systemic racism was at a fever pitch. But most importantly, it was a beautiful form of activism. It was a way for Black travelers and motorists to navigate the dark ages of racial segregation and white supremacy. It's also a historical document that forces us to re-examine the so-called overly romanticized and celebrated Great American Road Trip. It's a body of work that makes non-Black readers uncomfortable, and so it should. Mr. Green died on October 16, 1960, and his widow Alma Green continued to publish his work. But just after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, the Green Book was thought to be obscure by 1966. But I ask, was it premature in its demise? I, I kind of think so. The African-American travel experience certainly didn't change overnight, and we're still dealing with the fallout today. But with the rise of all-Black travel communities and travel clubs, we're seeing the African diaspora find safety and comfort traveling both domestically and internationally with like-minded people that they know and they trust. So, may the world continue to open their arms wide to travelers of color. And may the legacy of Victor's sense of community live on through Black travel communities forevermore. that's it for this week's episode of Across the Lands. Thank you so much for listening in. When I was doing research for this topic, I came up with so many different future episode ideas, so I'll definitely be working away diligently to put those together for you. If you have any questions about this episode or want me to cover a specific topic in the future, please feel free to send me an email at jordana at storiedlandstravel.com. I am proud to say my podcast is available across seven different platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcasts, CastBox, and Spotify, just to name a few. So please hit that subscribe button so you're notified the moment an episode drops. And if you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, I would be most grateful if you could leave a review. And remember, in a world where you can be anything, be kind.